In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We arrive with the Israelites to a place that one day would be known as the place where Israel put God to the test, Massah and Meribah. In the last chapter, they grumbled and received heavenly bread. In this chapter, they grumble again because they lack water. But what is Moses supposed to do? Get water from a stone? Yes, good morning. Today is Thursday, December 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about them at lhfmissions.org. They do amazing publishing and translating work, and they do a great service to the kingdom. Well, to help us navigate this chapter, chapter 17, join me in welcoming my guest, the Reverend John Busman, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I know that you've appeared on some other shows on KFUO, so I'm excited to now have you on Thy Strong Word. But for those who have not caught your story on, say, Sharper Iron or one of the other shows, share with the listeners a little bit about yourself and how God is working through you and the saints there at St. Paul's. Sure. Well, I am Pastor Busman. I'm down here in northern Alabama at St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School. I've been in this congregation now for for 10 years and really looking forward to continuing the ministry here and, and seeing how God is is causing growth in his kingdom, both uh, through our church and and especially in our school, in our school these days. Uh, it's really great to uh, see these children uh, hear the scriptures, some of them for the very first time, and, and uh, hear about their Lord Jesus and everything that he's done for them. That's a beautiful thing about school ministry, isn't it? You know, you get to share Jesus with, with people, kids, who otherwise may never have heard him. And also, that then extends to their families when they go home and they're excited to share what they've learned. So God's blessings to you in that ministry. That's just wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much. It's it's really, really great. Now, before we dive into our text today, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Would you start our time together off in prayer? Let us pray. Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant us your Holy Spirit who writes the preached word into our hearts so that we may receive and believe it and be gladdened and comforted by it in eternity. Glorify your word in our hearts. Make it so bright and warm that we may find pleasure in it and through your inspiration think what is right. By your power, fulfill the word for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today, brother, is entitled Water from the Rock, at least the first half of the chapter, and then the second half is Israel defeats Amalek. Uh, two different scenarios. Really, this first part of 17 is a continuation, so to speak, of them looking for food, for manna, which they received from heaven. But now they're, you know, give a mouse a cookie, right? Now they're looking for some water. But before we dive into the text, maybe catch us up. Let the listeners know what's been going on so that we can set the stage for this particular part. Sure. It's been very busy for God's people. Uh, they have come out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, and they've crossed the waters of the Red Sea. And uh, the response to that crossing, the response to that deliverance we see in chapter 15 was uh, the song of, of Moses, how God's people uh, not not singing about themselves and what they're going to do for God now that they're in the in the wilderness, but know about what God has has done for them. Uh, but of course, even in the midst of this deliverance, they're grumbling, and, and this text is going to be met with the uh, uh, the third or fourth, I believe, time that they've grumbled since they've been out of Egypt. So <laughs> here here we are. They have they have bread, but like you said, if you give them also a cookie. Uh, now they they want water, and it's not that uh, God can't or, or wouldn't. It's it's their continued ungratefulness in, in the face of the God who who saves and who provides. So that's that's where we are, and and we'll see them kind of continue on their on their way, and and God continue uh, being their faithful God. You know, it's easy for us to look back, isn't it, brother, and think about. 
well, you know, if I would have been in that situation, I would have just been so grateful that I'd have been freed from enslavement to Egypt that I would never have grumbled. But really, they are so reminiscent of sinners across time and including us today, grumbling, romanticizing the past. You know, they're like, well, well, what about the meat pots of Egypt? You know, they, they look back and they don't remember the hard labor. They just remember selfishly the fact that what lies ahead of them is a tough road. It's, it's difficult. They only have God's promise, which should be enough and is enough. But our sinful natures always want to know, well, what have you done for us lately? Yeah, they want to see those those miracles again. Uh, it's hard to hard to leave those behind when the wilderness is staring you uh, straight in the face, and there's going to be some time that passes before they get to the promised land. Oh, that that really must have been something to you know putting ourselves in their shoes to think about. Well, I know that where I'm going is supposed to be better, but I also know that we're we're clearly going the long way, and we don't know what lies ahead. Well, let me read verses uh, 1 through 7, which is the water from the rock scenario. This is going to be from the English Standard Version. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people there thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? All right, that's our text. So, starting at the beginning, what is going on here, brother? They're 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 moving on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Um, I, I will ask on behalf of the audience, what are they talking about? Wilderness of sin? That's not the sin like we think of it. No, no, no. no. This is this is a place. So, the easiest thing for God's people to have done when they left Egypt was to really stay on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and go up into the land that way. Uh, but God deliberately does not send them that way. Uh, the text will tell us lest they see the warring of the Philistines and turn back. So God doesn't want them involved with the Philistines yet. So he sends them around. And as they go, we, we, we remember uh, hundreds of thousands of men uh, not including their families so far. So they're having to move on by groups and going from from place to place, lest uh, they get caught in the middle of the wilderness with with no place to to lodge. So they're going on from uh, from place to place. And that's when they they realize or recognize that uh, they don't have uh, the water that they so desire. So they're going through these, you know the long way as we talk about to the promised land, but they don't feel like their needs are being met. Now, the Lord has tested them in the past, tested their faith, but here we see that they're putting the Lord to the test. The Hebrew word here is nisa, right? To test or prove, right? To, to put on trial, to make sure someone is loyal. God does that to us, like he did to Abraham, but they're testing the Lord uh, why is why is that a problem, I suppose? Well, we have the clear scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Of course, Jesus quotes this to the devil in the wilderness there in, in Matthew 4, uh, quoting uh, quoting back from, from Deuteronomy. But again, it's, is this the God who provides? Is this the God who saves? Is this the God who by a word creates? Or is he not? And, and the, the people are kind of having this, 
this issue. And, and again, it's very easy to look back at the scriptures and be very hard on the people. And I think sometimes we, we do that because it takes the focus off of us and our shortcomings. But, but again, they had just been witness uh, to the plagues, to God putting down uh, the mighty Pharaoh, the ruler of, of the world, really. And, and now here they are. Where is all of that stuff again? So not to excuse their sin, certainly, but you can kind of understand a little bit where they're coming from. Again, it doesn't make it right all. It, it is still sin, uh, putting God to the test, this whirling, right? Uh, not, not trusting in who God actually is. Yeah, I think it's important that you what you bring out. That is that, you know, we're not excusing, saying, well, you know, it, it makes sense, it's understandable. But you're absolutely right. We have to be careful that we don't just sit back from a mocking position saying, oh, those people, when we don't um, understand that we do this too. Surely, Pastor, um, you've been in a Moses position where the people have grumbled against you, but in reality, they're grumbling against God. Uh, you know, I, I know I've experienced that, not to elevate myself to the position of Moses, but as pastors and other church leaders, people who have to guide and direct a large group of people with different needs and wants and opinions, we can do our best to stick to what the Lord says, but that's not always what people want. And furthermore, it's difficult. You know, let's say your church is having, you know, trouble uh, keeping the bills paid. You're having trouble you know, bringing people in, you, you haven't seen uh, any sort of activity in terms of the Lord bringing people to the faith in quite a while. And so you try all of these things that aren't really consistent with scripture because you desire for these things to happen, but you're really just not showing faith that the Lord works when and where he pleases. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's so hard uh, because especially as pastors, you know, I think of, of, of new graduates or guys taking calls out there and, and thinking, well, I did things this way before and they didn't work out, but I'm going to do things this way, the right way this time. And everything's going to, everything's going to work out and everything's going to be great. And, and, and it, and it doesn't, right. What's, what's wrong? Where is God? Is God not, uh, is God not, um, does he not care about the word being preached rightly and the sacraments being administered? Uh, why aren't people uh, coming in? And in the same way, like you said, you know, it can it can be frustrating for the for the people as well. And and in a wide uh, array of of things, right? We find ourselves quote unquote grumbling for water or for bread or looking for what God has done for them. Uh, for them lately. Well, ultimately, all of that is what is mentioned here in verse seven, the very last phrase or sentence, is the Lord or is Yahweh among us or not? That was ultimately how they were testing the Lord. Even if they didn't say those words specifically, they are saying that by their grumbling. If you believe that God will provide and you believe his promises, and you know that he works when and where he pleases. And for these folks, they've seen the powerful enactments of, of God in history. And yet you, you, your doubt gets a hold of you or your fear or your impatience. Then you're essentially saying, is God here or not? And we forget and, too sometimes, sorry to interrupt, but we forget also along these stories that, that not only is manna continuing to fall, but the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire are, are still there. You know, that's not just something that happened at the Red Sea and then not again at the tabernacle. That's how God is leading his people all the way through the wilderness. So they, they can literally look out and see that God is with them and they're still, they're still quarreling. They're still putting God to the test. Oh, how true. That's striking. I'm just thinking about that in my head. You're absolutely right. They, they, they look out there and God's still with them. It's not as though it's, he's disappeared. And in the same way with us today, God continues to come to us in his word. He continues to come to us in the sacrament. Those things haven't ceased. God keeps on doing what he says. He continues to give faith in baptism. 
and we get dissatisfied with the ways that God has des- designed. You know, and they now let, let's look at that in in the bread. They eventually get very dissatisfied with the bread, right? All we have is this bread from heaven to eat, which is kind of a silly statement, but they do. They're going to eventually get tired of the bread. In this case, you know, it, it appears that there was no water for the people to drink. That's how the, the text is given. So it's not as though they're like, well, we don't like the drink that we have, right? All we have is diet Pepsi. So we, we want something better. So there, in their case, there is nothing. There's nothing for them to drink. So it's not as though they're just dissatisfied with what they have. The dissatisfaction or the lack of faith comes from not trusting that God's going to take care of them. What do you think about that? that? That's a really good point. You know, it's one thing to say, well, look at all this bread. I, I'm tired of looking at this bread. I'm tired of looking at all this quail. But what it seems from them is, is they have nothing. Now, interestingly, if you kind of go through the go through the peninsula here, the, the wilderness where they are, you know, God, God will very, uh, intentionally put them at these, uh, these oasises. Is that the plural of oasis or is it oasi? I want to say oasises because oh, it sounds, it sounds, uh, it sounds right. But, uh, you know, so these places in the wilderness where there is actually, well, you know, water flowing. And I wonder how much of this is, is simply, you know, looking for the, looking for the Nile to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, and, and all of this. But, um, you know, the text right there in, in verse one says there was no water where they were at that time. So, but God, again, God's going to provide. He does not ever in the scriptures do something and have to come back around and say, well, oops, uh, maybe I shouldn't have gone this way because there's no water quick. Let's figure out what we're going to do. Even in the matters of creation. He, he creates the space and then he fills the space. He doesn't create this random bird and say, oh, I need, I need a place for the bird to go and, and oops, I need food for the bird to eat. Right. He, he creates the space and and then fills the space. So he's going to provide and the people, uh, should see this. That's an easy thing to say again from our position, but, um, but they're impatient. Yeah, and again, it's more than just God does not make mistakes, which he does not, but that our God is a God of order. He has it all planned out. But, you know, Moses is as guilty of this as the people, and so are we, as you point out. So the people grumble against Moses. I have a note here in one of the commentaries that I consult, and it says that um, in chapter 16 through uh, 17, verse 3, with the, the grumbling, that this word of grumbling occurs over a dozen times. So no, probably seven times, pardon me, seven times. And seven is a is an interesting number, of course, theologically. Uh, I don't think that it has any theological significance, don't get me wrong. But the fact that it's occurring seven times is so much. You know, when Hebrew repeats things, it's repeating it for emphasis. To repeat something seven times, uh, even if by accident, really just shows that these people are so dissatisfied. And I I like what you said, that it's not just that they don't trust God to provide for them, but they want him to provide for them in this this amazing display of his power, like he did with the 10 plagues, like he did with the Red Sea. Right. And and maybe there is something to that, uh, to that number seven. Uh, I I don't know. I'd have to have to certainly consider that and people putting yeah. themselves in the place of God. I, I don't know, but that's, that's a lot in that, in that very short, short amount of time that there is, it's, it's persistent and, and they're not, you know, certainly not calling, calling upon God the, the right way at this time. When we lose sight of God, we can lose sight of what he's providing for us in the here and now. And of course, what he's promised to provide for us in the future. So he gives them the instructions. Uh, he gives Moses the instructions, pass on before the people, take with you some of the elders and take in your hand that staff with which you struck the Nile. To me, those words connect to what you said earlier, which has got me thinking. That is, you know, if they're looking for these these amazing signs. So God does provide for them even in their moments of doubt and he kind of provides for them in the way that they're desiring. They're looking for a miracle. Fine. 
here's a miracle. It shows God's patience and mercy even in the midst of the people's sin. Sure, and it's the same thing. You know, God does not come up with these novel acts all the time. He's not picking up another stick that he finds along the way, and he's not, you know, using all of these abracadabra-like words. He's, he's using the same staff, and we'll see him use the staff again as we have before. It, it's, it's a very important thing. So, uh, again, God working the same way. And the people, even though they grumble and complain for different things, the grumble and the complaint is the same thing. So the people are doing the same thing and God is providing for them really the, the exact same way. Well, God is providing for them and through this rock, which of course connects us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to read the verses and uh, I'd like to see what you have to think. Uh, verse 10, or sorry, pardon me, chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink because they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Uh, I can't help but also include five, which says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. But speaking or focusing directly to the idea that this rock from which they drank, Paul connects that in a very direct way. Uh, not just symbolized Christ, but this rock was Christ and followed them. Um, I'm, sh I'm sure you under you've, you've studied that idea before. Oh, yes. This is... Uh... A little sarcasm here. This is one of the clearest sections of all the scriptures. <laughs> I, uh, Absolutely. This is this is this is tough here in in a way, uh, but again, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. I think today, especially when we hear that word spiritual, you kind of think like floaty and cloudy, new age junk, right? <laughs> uh, but that word simply means of the spirit. So the food of the spirit. And the drink of the spirit, for they drank from the rock of the spirit, and the rock was Christ. So again, just to reiterate, God is is working in the same way, and the New Testament is simply coloring in uh, what the Old Testament is is laying out for us, or or building the house uh, for the blueprint that is the Old Testament, and 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 our Lord Jesus Christ just comes full. Uh, full picture there when we actually see what is going on, that God is, is providing, uh, again, <laughs> through Jesus. Uh, look at the, uh, look at the cross, uh, when Jesus talks about himself, uh, being a, a cornerstone, things of this nature. And, and from the cross, when, when he dies and his side is pierced, outflows blood and and water. It's, it's the birth of his bride, the church. So you, you literally see that, uh, the water coming from the rock that is Christ, that, that gives life to all. And we have also their camping at Rephidim and he goes to Mount Horeb. Now Rephidim will be renamed, uh, Massah and Meribah. It hasn't quite yet, but there he God's also operating in this area of uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. So again, our God's a God of order. He's bringing them back to where it began. Right, bringing them full circle from uh, from the burning bush, and that's a that's an important connection to make. And even if you uh, even if you write notes in your Bible to to underline Horeb and remember that this is this is Mount Sinai. That's where Elijah would go when uh, he happened. Uh, Jezebel were were pursuing him. He would spend forty days and forty nights at Horeb, which is uh, which is Mount Sinai. So back where it back where it all started. So stand there. Uh, well, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and and water uh, shall come out of it. This reminds me too. Speaking of the school again, we have matins uh, every morning with our school children and. And we sing, and, and they know very well uh, Psalm 95, what, what we sing is the Venite. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock 
of our salvation. And there, uh, it starts off this way. And then at the very end, of course, it's not part of the Venite that we sing in the order of Matins, but God reminds them, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. So there's a nice, a nice picture there at the beginning of Psalm 95 about the rock of our salvation, but knowing that he's the rock, don't start putting him to the test again, like you did way back mm-hmm. in Exodus 17. That's right. And then in Rephidim, or this area gets renamed Massah and Meribah. Uh, you know, we name churches after saints and other types of uh, physical locations and, and places. Uh, do you know any Massah and Meribah Lutheran churches? No, you know, it's, it's interesting, but I come across, uh, you know, Laodicea, different places all the time. And I'm thinking, man, it's, it's, read, <laughs> read the, read the text surrounding those names. And I don't know that you would name them that, but, uh, to each their own, I guess. And, and maybe, maybe naming is a reminder to, to not do those things of, of the, the places of, of old, but no, I haven't come across a, a Masa or, or a Meribah Lutheran church. I don't know if you have. Well, you know, Masa, of course, means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. So I think I might have known of a few churches that could take those monikers, but Lord bless us all that were that were sinners in need of repentance. Uh, but he does. He renames the place because that's a common practice. They rename it in remembrance of what happened there, good and bad. So God appears to, uh, you know, Moses, and then he renames the place in honor of that. The people rebel against God. He renames the place in honor of that. It's a way of passing down that information through the ages. And of course, as we already mentioned, he says that because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? And I I imagine that even by their actions, they're saying that, but people are probably going around saying, you know, did we leave God out in the desert? Do we leave God at the Red Sea? Do, is God still in Egypt, maybe still getting glory over the false gods of Egypt? But as you pointed out, no, they can see God. Why are they saying that? It just, sin does not make sense sometimes. No, that's absolutely right. And, uh, and this is, again, exactly what the devil does in the garden. They can see literally the tree of life, but they choose, they choose death instead. Uh, when when God is is there walking with them in the cool of the day, they they choose to follow the serpent. So sin, right? It, it, it doesn't make sense, but uh, but we're all we're all sinners, and and we all have this this tendency to to go that way for whatever reason. Well, when we come back, folks, from our break, which is right here upon us, the Israelites are going to encounter their first opposition from other people since they've arrived in the wilderness from the Amalekites. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back soon. Pastor Busman and I will see you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend John Busman, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. Folks at home, you know what I say after the break, and that is if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me. I respond to every email I receive. My address is pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, now, Pastor Busman, before the break, we were just finishing up, or at least I believe we finished up the section on the water from the rock. But before we move into the next, anything else you want to make sure that people know? 
The the only other thing to to note, you know, right there at the at the break, I talked about you know be, being in sin and not making sense. But but again, just to reiterate, as we will over and over and over, uh, that that God continues to to come to His people, uh, people who grumble, the people who complain, and and continues to to provide for them just as He does for us. Our next text is going to be from Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through the rest of the chapter, which is verse 16. Here we go. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now that's the end of our chapter, but certainly not the end of our discussion. So Israel defeats Amalek is the title the ESV editors give it, uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, wow, what's going on? Now they're having to fight people in the wilderness? Yeah, you know, we, we really don't expect this to start happening until, until the book of Joshua and, and the conquest, or even before that, just with, with Sihon and Og kind of getting to the point of, of, the, uh, of the Jordan, but but here already, I mean, think uh, they've just come out of come out of Egypt. The wa- waters of the Red Sea have just parted, and now they're now they're fighting uh, in in a battle already, and it's a battle of the brothers, uh, Israel and, and Amalek. It's Jacob and Esau all over again. If you read in Genesis chapter thirty six, in in the genealogy of Esau. I know the tendency when we're reading the scriptures is to just kind of skip over those sometimes because, well, what does it matter? We can't pronounce the names uh, very well and, and, and there's not really any point we think, but if we would stop and and read those in Genesis 36, you hear, uh, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the first four of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. So there he is. This is these are the descendants of 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 Esau here, uh, who had been out of the land for quite some time. So again, battle of the brothers uh, here here to start with. So we also see Joshua. Right, we'll we'll start hearing more about him through the wilderness, uh, especially at, at Mount Sinai, because of course, Joshua would take up the, take up the staff from, from Moses at the end of his life. So first of all, I have to say that any of the folks who are listening that are in my church are probably laughing a little bit now because we've been going through Genesis and we got to 36 and I said, you know, we're going to skip this one. <laughs> Here you are saying, don't You did. It. Well, we went through, we were going through Genesis 2. We're only, we're only a couple of chapters uh, ahead of you, but yeah, there's some good stuff in those genealogies for sure. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I have, I, and, and you're right. You know, God does not include them for no purpose at all. Sometimes, though, when our eyes, eyes start to glaze over, it's time to take a break. And we actually are taking a break from Genesis now. We're going to finish it up later. But yeah, this is the first mention of Joshua in the Old Testament, as you pointed out. We also have her here. Her is another, I guess, high-ranking leader. You know, he's going to be one of the leaders that assists Aaron in governing the people while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. That's in a few chapters from now. But we have this first interaction, and you said it best. We don't expect this. This is surprising. And to know who Amalek is, 
which, as you said, demonstrates the importance of reading Genesis chapter 36. But by knowing who he is, we, we understand what's going on. But it still doesn't make any less surprising. No, that, the question, that's right. But the question I have is that God doesn't instruct Moses to hold up that staff, or at least we don't have that recorded in Scripture. So that's kind of an interesting thing with holding up this staff. We know the staff's been used by God miraculously in several different ways, all the way going, going all the way back to appearing before Pharaoh uh, and the water at the rock, which we just heard. But now he's, he's calling upon God, um, and then it, it seems to matter whether or not he's holding up the staff or not. How are we to understand that? Right. Again, God works the same way he always has worked. And, you know, if you pay attention to the language in the Exodus, oh, well, let's even go back to Genesis, how God identifies himself, right? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, but to Isaac, he simply says, I am the God of Abraham, your father, right? And, and he, he adds more things he is as he goes, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm delivered you uh, from bondage to Pharaoh. So very, very important and very specific language about how God, uh, how God delivers. So an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. If we go back and we see uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. How were the people to cross? Well, Moses' outstretched hand, and this is reiterated in, uh, in the Song of Moses, verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. And then verse 12, You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. So really for the people, a reminder that it's not, I mean, it's through Moses, but it's not, you know, Moses's miracles. It's God working through Moses. It's God's outstretched hand and mighty arm that is again uh, saving his people. We see this all over in other places in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but, but maybe just to encourage the listeners to look out for this as they read the stories of the Old Testament, uh, consider the judge Samson, right after his hair is, is cut off and he's imprisoned by the Philistines and uh, his eyes are, are gouged out, he's put to, put to work and then he, he goes out at the party of the Philistines to entertain the people and he asks for something very specific. He asks to brace himself upon the pillars of the house. So Samson's arms are like Moses's here in battle. They are outstretched pushed upon these, these pillars and, and thereby Samson's outstretched hands, God, uh, delivers his people, Israel once again. And you know, of course it, it, you, you have to push this forward into the new Testament and see how God ultimately saves, uh, his people saves, uh, the world through the outstretched hands of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And, and there's something very interesting here in the text uh, that the hands are uh, fixed, the hands are steady, verse 12. So it's not like the, the hands are moving about this way and that, that they are actually in a fixed uh, in a fixed position. So I don't think that that's something that we necessarily need to just read over and, and not make a big deal out of. I'm just thinking through what you're saying, and I hadn't really considered that before at all. The outstretched hands connecting it to all the way to Samson, all the way to Jesus is such a beautiful imagery. Um, I suppose I was a little more simplistic about it when I was first reading it over, which is also just the mere fact that this staff in his hand, he refers to here as the staff of God. Not the first time. Back in chapter 4, Moses took his wife and his sons and he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Uh, if he's mentioning it and describing it as the staff of God, undoubtedly the people also see it not as Moses's stick or his walking stick or his cane. They too see it as the staff of God. 
So when Moses is raising up the staff of God above his hand, or head, pardon me, and then they're, they're being victorious, people are looking at that and they're seeing that, well, the battle is won only with divine aid, right? Only because God is with us, it removes from them any sort of temptation to pride. God is the one ultimately in control. You combine that with, of course, that beautiful imagery that you gave us. It reminds us that God will, God will prevail, and and we are saved only because, well, you know, we're with Him, and that's that's what we have to remember. Right, and He will, and and even in the in the conquest and in the Book of Judges, you know, some of these things look look utterly ridiculous. Right, it looks it probably looks crazy, especially to the people of Jericho that these people from the wilderness are marching around the city and, but the walls come tumbling down, right? And it's not the work of the people. This is all the work of God. It is God, uh, God saving his people, uh, no matter how, no matter if the people can make sense of, of the way he's doing it or not, God is saving, God is delivering. Now, of course the people uh, this won't be good enough for them later when they demand a king, specifically King Saul, because they want to be like everybody else. Uh, so they, they, they're, they're in constant rebellion uh, against God. But, but, but again, God continues to save his people, whether the people can make sense of it or not. God is the one in control. Now, with that said, though, we have in the following verses— Beginning with verse 14, God tells Moses to write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. A couple of things come to mind, which I'm sure may come to your mind, and at least one I'm certain have come to the minds of our listeners. The first of which is, this is an interesting note because it's, so far as I know, the first instance of writing something down that's mentioned in the Bible. Now, we are in the 10th century BC, something around there. So no, nothing really has survived since then. So it, it makes us curious in what way this was written down and passed down. But the other thing, which I think everybody's ears may have perked up with, he says that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, which has not happened if for no other reason Besides the fact that book. he wrote it right here. <laughs> right, exactly. But, so obviously there's a greater meaning to this. Sure, but but we really don't have any trace of Amalek outside of outside of this and, and a genealogy, right? But these it's very interesting talking about uh writing in the Old Testament. Uh you know, we, we talk about the books of Moses and the commandments and all of this, but there are several books that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament that we simply don't have uh, anymore. Maybe they're out there someplace, but uh, I'm thinking very specifically of the book of Second Kings. When you get to the end of a king's life, either of Israel or, or of Judah, it says, now, are not all the rest of the acts of Hezekiah written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? That will, you know, that's not the book of Chronicles that we have. There's something else out there that, documents everything that, uh, basically everything that we want to know for a good Hollywood movie that didn't make it in the Bible. So there was writing, uh, going on outside of what was being recorded, uh, you know, well, in, the Hebrew in the had a, the Hebrews had a written language, uh, you know, even by secular standards as early as 17th century BC. Sure. Uh, some say it developed from Egyptian hieroglyphics, which w would make sense. But we see here uh, the other issue. You mentioned King Saul earlier with them calling for a king. Well, when King Saul comes on the scene, we, uh, we also see the Amalekites again because he refuses or rather disobeys the Lord's command to completely destroy the Amalekites and their possessions. From 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. So when God said he's going to wipe out, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, he meant it. And he sent Saul to accomplish this, which he fails to do. And the Lord rejects Saul. Right. Good, good reference there. I like that. So we do see while Amalek is mentioned in the scriptures, <laughs> you know, his memory isn't necessarily blotted out in that way, as you pointed out, you know, who's he? <laughs> right? right, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. It was not something that had, they had any power. And God, just like he showed his glory over the gods of Egypt, God will continue to show his glory, get judgment against other nations. And people say, well, gosh, it seems so harsh to put to the sword everybody and their animals. Well, harshness when compared to our human sense of justice and judgment, but God is wholly other. He is completely outside of all of our understandings. What God does, he does, and he does it in righteousness. And that's and, more, that's the other reason that I wanted to bring up specifically the genealogy and the connection to Esau, because that is what makes reading books like Joshua judges, especially Joshua, though, so difficult for people because they, they have a hard time making sense of this God who, who commands this destruction. And, and many people will simply say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, you know, isn't like that, which, which we, we certainly don't want to speak this way. But in, in focusing on these genealogies, when we come across these people later, we, we really see that, that no, they're, they're not these innocent bystanders that just so happen to be at the wrong place in the wrong time. And God, you know, God wants to give his people this land just because we actually see, know that these are, these are descendants of, you know, mostly descendants of, of Ham, descendants of the curse. And they, uh, descendants of Nimrod who stands in the face of God. So, uh, unrepentant sin reigns supreme. Now, not all of them, of course, would be destroyed, especially those who repent, like like Rahab in Jericho, uh, but to to look at these people as if they're just kind of in the wrong place, at the wrong time, or innocent bystanders is would would be incorrect. And that's what's really important for us to remember. And we also have to understand that you know, according to His righteousness, and of course our sin, we all deserve death and punishment. What we receive in terms of life, in terms of salvation. Is, has nothing to do with us. You know, there's always that idea, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And sort of the Lutheran joke is, well, Lutherans don't believe in good people. And that's right. where we are at. We recognize that we're poor, miserable sinners, which makes God's salvation on our behalf so much more poignant and important. But it also should temper our understanding of, say, when we see God exercise judgment against a people like in the Old Testament. And if we think about people today who, because they don't know Christ, could and, and, and deserve to, just like we do, receive God's judgment at the end of their lives or the end of time, then instead of complaining about God being just or unjust, let's go out there and proclaim Christ to them so that they could escape that punishment. Well, exactly. I really like the way you, you put that, you know, not necessarily calling for death and destruction, but, but for repentance no matter how, no matter how evil uh, or hateful somebody may be in the world or to you, all of that would come to an end if they would repent, right? There, <laughs> right. there, the, 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 um, things, things would be different. Again, it wouldn't make them stop being a sinner, but yeah. they would certainly see the world, uh, in a different way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, which necessarily means that it is not ours. We proclaim the gospel. And in these cases, of course, he sends his people to exercise his judgment. But in these last days, he's not sent us to do that. So we have some distinct vocational differences between us and the ancient Israelites. In verse 14, then the Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. We've already talked about that a little bit. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I'll utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. But then verse 15, and Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Uh, 
Maybe explain that if you've looked into it. Sure. It's, it's, it's interesting as we, again, look through the Old Testament, that God's people aren't just roaming around building altars wherever they want to. Uh, they're not choosing, oh, this, this looks like a nice place to worship. Uh, I'm going to do that. Uh, well, until we get to Judges and Micah and the Levite, but uh, that's a story for a different time. But we, we see these altars being built at very specific places. Uh, first of all, where God initiates the connection, the conversation with his people. So, for instance, in Genesis 15, when God tells Abram, to your offspring, I give this land. Uh, that's where the altar is, is built, and these places become known for what God did for his people in that specific place. So uh, building this altar, when people would, would come back through, whoever it would be, they could recall the work of God for his people in that place. And that's what we do uh, today. That's what the divine service is all about. We have altars, and we recall the work of God, what he has done for us through, uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, uh, calling it the Lord is my banner. Uh, you know, this, this word uh, is, is connected to that, to that staff, right? So naming it, uh, reminding, re recalling what God has done through his own staff in the hand of Moses, uh, by defeating the Amalekites there. And a banner would be something that one might carry into warfare to identify to whom they belong or who they're fighting for. And so to name it, Yahweh is my banner. The Hebrew word could also be translated just like the mast upon which a banner would, would hang. It brings to my mind this staff of Yahweh, to be honest, the staff of the Lord. Uh, maybe that's not 100% correct. You can write me and let me know. <laughs> but regardless, I see here that that he's distinguishing that the people of God were victorious, not because they're strong, not because of anything within themselves, but because they're fighting, I should say for the Lord, but also the Lord is using them. He's the one in charge. And so it says a hand upon the throne of Yahweh, Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that certainly came true with the Amaleks going all the way through David and still having to be an, uh, still being an enemy of God's people. And just like all the others who were in Canaan, who were supposed to be wiped out, um, maybe they didn't all get wiped out, but that's not the fault of God so much as it is the people of God, not, you know, living perfectly as he's called us to do. Right. Uh, very well said. Of course, that pushes us through the wilderness into, into Joshua and, and judges and, and God uh, causing the people, uh, the enemies then to be thorns in their side. But again, it does not stop God from remaining with his people. Uh, he will remain with them, uh, delivering and saving by means of, again, his word. Well, we have come to the end of our time together, but I'm so grateful that you were able to join us this morning. Folks, this has been the Reverend John Busman, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Good to talk to you. I hope to have you on again. Well, until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.